So I'd like to begin the talk this morning with one of my favorite recent quotes. You know, teachers collect quotes. But here it is, and then I'll talk about it. Reality is that which doesn't go away when you stop believing in it. (laughs) A good example of that is gravity. You can say, oh, I don't believe in gravity. No, gravity doesn't exist. Well, good luck with that. That's a very clear example. It, it is, like it or not, gravity exists. In the same way, we can, as we practice in this tradition of Buddhism, we will find descriptions of how things are, and we may want to reject them because they don't fit what we like or how we wish things were. But in truth, reality is what, being in touch with reality, as you can see in the example of gravity, is not a bad thing. It helps us. So today I want to talk about three of the essential characteristics of reality that the Buddha talked about that's, that where he that said this is what we need to come into a harmonious relationship with these are called the three characteristics of existence or the three marks of existence and some of you I know have heard this talk probably more than once what are these three characteristics they are said to characterize reality, characterize every moment of our existence. They're not somehow out there separate from this very moment of living that we are each experiencing right now. If we look carefully, we will find the truth of these three things in our own experience. So they connect these three characteristics connect these universal truths like gravity. This is how it is. This is how it is. These three things are connected to a very personal experience. So we have both the universal truth and a personal experience of that universal truth. Many people try to deny the universal truth because they don't want the personal experience. So what are these three characteristics? Some of you already know. Let's hear. What do you think I'm talking about? Impermanence. Impermanence. Number one, the biggie. Impermanence. The fact of impermanence. Like gravity. Like it or not. That's the world we live in. Things are constantly in flux, constantly changing. Nothing lasts. Second characteristic is what? Say again. Impersonal in the sense that it's not... (laughs) 
it's not personal. You know, we say don't take it personally. But it really isn't personal. And that's so that's something we have to come to terms with. We have, we, we have things happen to us that feel deeply personal. But actually they're part of how it is for humans. It's impersonal in that sense. If you're a human being, you're subject to many experiences that perhaps you'd rather not have, like falling down and getting hurt or feeling depressed or feeling fearful. It comes with being human. In that sense, it's not personal. The third characteristic, what could that be? Equally big and important. Thank you. (laughs) It's okay to say out loud. Dukkha. Yes, suffering. So the Buddha is known for talking about suffering. The kind of suffering that he was pointing to is obvious in some ways. Yes, the body is subject to all kinds of, you know, frailty and disease and eventually death itself. The mind is subject to all kinds of emotions that are very upsetting and difficult. And the but the 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 main cause, the Buddha said, of our suffering is And this is where we can work in our practice. We can't get rid of the frailty of the body. It's just the way it is. We can't get rid of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That is the nature of human life. But we can do one thing. And that's the important thing for our practice to remember. So the Buddha said the cause of our suffering, and I like to just keep it simple, Like, just, okay, it's a one-liner. The cause of our suffering. (laughs) Say it, Anna. Um, the (laughs) The cause of our suffering. Wanting things to be different than they are. That about sums it up. Yeah, things are difficult. But the real suffering is in wanting it to be other than what it is. And that's where practice works. So this is a practice of insight meditation. And why is it that, what is, what is insight about? Why do we need insight? What's so great about insight? So when we start practice, we may have insight into many things, like the fact that our mind doesn't do what we tell it, or the fact that our body is full of aches and pains, or the fact that our mind is all over the place, or we have insights into how we can improve our relationships or make decisions. All of that is really good, but the the three insights that the Buddha was most concerned about was, that he said were the insights that truly liberate it has to do with insight into the fact of impermanence, the fact of suffering, and the fact of the impersonal nature of our lives.
So we need practices that correct our belief in permanence, in, in, in our insistence on getting what we want and having things be the way we want them, and our uh, insistence on claiming things to be me or mine that are simply not. We're all subject to these three things. Yet, when we experience loss or aging or the suffering of illness or the ephemeral nature of our very sense of self, it can seem very personal. Like, why me? Why does this always happen to me? Or this is not, this can't be true. This is not me. This is not how I live my life. Or some version of taking it as some kind of personalized persecution. (laughs) You know, like this is just, I can't know. Something is terribly wrong. Like uh, a student told me once about her, her father... Uh, as he lay dying, he had been a very successful kind of hard-charging CEO in in control, in charge of things, you know, that kind of... He built his identity on his ability to make things work. And suddenly he was diagnosed with a, an uh, illness, I don't know what kind, and he was dying. And his daughter... My student said, he kept repeating to her, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if somehow this was a great error, that he should not be dying. Something was, he had done something wrong. So that's an example of taking it personally. personally. So, What liberates is when we don't take it personal. When we can free ourselves from the misperception that this is something personal. Kalu Rinpoche famously said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, we are that reality pointing directly to these three things. These are three ways we could say when we are not in touch with impermanence, when we are not in touch with the truth of suffering, when we're not in touch with the truth of not-self, we are living in illusion. We see permanence where there is impermanence. We see happiness where there is suffering. We see self where there is none to be found. These, you could say, are agreed upon hallucinations because we live in a culture that has a hard time recognizing or wanting to uh, 
uh, open to the fact of impermanence, suffering, and not self. So let's look at each one of these a little more closely. We'll begin with the suffering, dukkha. The Buddha said once, quite succinctly, what the world calls happiness, I call suffering. What the world calls suffering, I call happiness. So what was he pointing to? What does the world call happiness? Sense pleasures, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant people, pleasant events, pleasant... Whatever is pleasant is often seen as the goal of how to be happy. Fantasies, stories. Now... There's nothing wrong with sense pleasures. It's not like you're, you, you need to eliminate those. But the harder task is not to be fooled by them, not to think that that is what will do it for you, will bring ultimate happiness. Why won't they bring ultimate happiness? In part, it's because pleasures don't last. They reveal their ephemeral impermanent nature. They come and they go. So we can think back over our lives now that we've lived as long as we have. There's a bit of age in this room. Some of you are younger, some of you are... There's some tread on your tires. And you think back over your life, think of all the pleasurable things you have experienced in your life. You've had your share, right? There's a saying as we age, absence of pleasure is a pain when you are young. Absence of pain is a pleasure when you are old. So there's very much a, a, a sense as we get older that we, the pleasures are different now. But what brings pleasure is different as we age. I see that in my own experience. So many things I'm not, uh, you know, <laughs> the idea of staying up really late at night just doesn't ring for me anymore. <laughs> Whereas the idea of an afternoon nap is just like, oh, that's just the ultimate in luxury. Let's do that. Carl Jung said, what is a normal goal to a young person becomes a neurotic hindrance in old age. If we're still looking for a romantic, you know, uh, honeymoon or a romantic you know, the finding the perfect person at the age of 80, well, <laughs> that seems odd. Although, some there it does go on. I just heard of a, a recent marriage in a nursing home among two 93-year-olds. They f- feel like they found their soulmate at last. Now, that's lovely, but if it's the whole thing, if it's the whole purpose of your life, that maybe is a little questionable. There was a New Yorker cartoon of a, a 
porch. A lot of old people sitting in rocking chairs on a porch, looking pretty old and, you know, kind of how old people look. (laughs) And then among them is this young, like we would say a babe, like like a Marilyn Monroe look-alike, you know, this woman with a perfect buxom body, wearing a bikini, and she's got her hair and her face, everything. She says, she's saying to the old people, it cost a bundle, but I can't tell you how much better I feel about myself. And for some old people, that's the, the goal, is to get the body, you know, looking young and feeling like it, you know, that age has not happened to them. So, it's easy in our culture to get confused because we we don't like old. We don't like anything being old. We don't like old people. We don't like old cars. We don't like anything old. We don't have a, a sense of respect for the elderly, for the most part. It's lacking. So, uh, do you recognize what the truth of what I'm saying? How do you feel as an older person in our culture? What have you noticed? What has come? What has come towards you as you've gotten older? Let's hear a few examples. What have you noticed? Yes. You're more invisible. Yes, there's something about not being noticed. What else? Here's one. I feel great. I feel liberated. You feel liberated. How old are you? 65. 65. So that's another aspect of getting older. Sometimes we do feel more ourselves, more free in ourselves. Great. Yes. I find I have to spend more energy overcoming being rigid. Overcoming being rigid. So you notice certain patterns in yourself. Well, that's a good thing to be able to work with that. But what what I'm trying to get at is what are some of the attitudes in our culture about aging? that you have experienced. Yes. Surprisingly, when I let my hair go silver last year, I felt way more myself. Yes. And recognized uh, as a wise grandmother. Yes. And although I'm not actually a grandmother, yes. I, I even had a little boy recognize me as a grandmother. Uh-huh. Saying, I have a grandmother too. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, good. Yes, good. So you, this is a wonderful attitude. Um, we may, perhaps are uh, in a part of the population that 
is, um, for one thing, we're, you know, it's unusual for people over 60 to have a meditation practice. It's one of the trends that is happening among older people that there are more people perhaps among the boomers who have taken up some inner discipline of yoga or tai chi, qigong or meditation. And that makes a difference in how we perceive ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, our attitude towards aging, our attitudes towards our bodies. We see that there's more than just a body getting older. There's more a richness in our inner life that not all old people experience, especially when they get very identified with their body as being who they are. So, um, there's a story from the Buddhist time about a, a, a man whose name was Badia Kaligoda. And he had been a very wealthy merchant in the nearby town. And he decided to try out the meditation of the Buddha. So he came out and put on robes and was out in the forest with the rest of the monks practicing. And the the other monks kept hearing him muttering to himself. And he what he was saying to himself over and over again was, Ah, oh, what bliss. Ah, oh, what bliss. Ah, oh, what, what bliss. And they, they were confused. Like, why is he talking to himself? So they happened to mention this to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, Oh, bring him to me and I'll, I'll find out what's going on. So, so Kaligoda went to see the Buddha. And the Buddha asked, you know, why are you, what prompts you to say over and over again, ah, what bliss. And here is his explanation. He said, formerly revered sir, when I was a householder and enjoyed the bliss of royalty, inside and outside my inner apartments, guards were appointed to protect my many possessions. Inside and outside the city guards were appointed. Inside and outside, the district guards were appointed to protect my many possessions. But I lived fearful, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, revered sir, on going alone into the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty place, I feel fearless, unagitated, confident, unafraid. I live unconcerned, unruffled, my needs satisfied, with a mind like a deer's. I'm not sure what that would be like, but, the, you know, the deer, I've noticed the deer here, they're very calm. Maybe because they know they're around humans that aren't going to hurt them. But they're very calm, and so if you happen upon a deer at Spirit Rock, and you just look into the deer's eyes, the deer will just look at you as long as you want. They're just there, kind of like, oh, hi, yeah. You know, they don't have self-consciousness. I almost, the first time in my life, almost hit a deer trying to disparate rock this morning, coming up. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, luckily I didn't hit it. And and I drive like a little old lady, so that might have... 
account of her me avoiding hitting this deer, but I was coming up White's Hill on the yeah. deer, and a deer leapt out they, from down they can below do that. Yes. on the canyon side, just leapt right in front of my car. Yes. And I braked, but just in a nanosecond, it escaped to the other side. Well, of good. The road. But I've never come that close to hitting it. Yes, it I know. A start, like, oh. If I'd been driving one mile an hour faster, I would have struck mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I'm glad that didn't occur. In any case, this story is, he's saying that seeing his experience of being completely unguarded out in the woods with no guards to protect his stuff and his house and his possessions, <laughs> He felt much more at ease, much more himself. It reminds me, actually, of how often people feel on a retreat. And many of you, I know, have sat retreats here. You are in a protected area where your your needs are simple but taken care of. You relax. Many people experience that bliss of not having to check your email, your phone, your this person asking this, this person coming for that, you know, all the, the, the demands that are placed upon us in our worldly lives. Just the information load itself, when you put that aside, it's bliss. You can begin to understand Kali Goda's experience going out into the forest by himself, nothing to worry about. So he's saying something about what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. Like for many people, the even coming here to this class would be like suffering. Like I have to sit still for a whole two hours, you know. That would be agony, Whereas for you all, it's a relief, don't you feel? Coming here, sitting in this beautiful hall, there's some sense of, ah, I can relax, come back to myself. Nobody's making demands here. So we see that what the Buddha said, what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. What the world calls happiness, I call suffering. You know that we begin to understand what he's talking about. Many years ago, I was at IMS practicing on a long retreat, and my niece, who was probably about 10 years old at that time, uh, I had a birthday while I was on retreat, and I got a card from my 10-year-old niece, and she said, do they make you be quiet on your birthday? And of course, I didn't experience it that way. It was like, oh, I love being in silence. But she saw it as, oh, a punishment. Ryokan, the Japanese uh, poet monk who lived up in the mountains, he wrote, My house is buried in the deepest recess of the forest. Every year, ivy vines grow longer than the year before. Undisturbed by the affairs of the world, I live at ease, woodmen singing, rarely reaching me through the trees. While the sun stays in the sky, I mend my torn clothes. 
and facing the moon, I read holy texts aloud to myself. Let me drop a word of advice for you seekers. To enjoy life's immensity, you do not need many things. That's a beautiful thing to know. That the enjoyment of the full richness of life does not require a house full of stuff. Another thing about suffering and happiness. In our culture, as people age, as they get ill, as they are dying, we give a lot, a lot, a lot of attention to the body. We are a materialistic culture. We believe in the body is the source of consciousness the brain. So we have a lot of emphasis on taking care of the body and it's, you know, the wonders of modern medicine. That's not a bad thing. But from the Dharma perspective, this is not the most important thing. As you get old, as you are ill, as you are dying, what is the most important thing? From the Dharma perspective, it's your mind. The state of your mind is more important than whether or not you are dying even. We can see from our practice that our minds are our most intimate companion. As we go through our lives, moment to moment, day to day, week to week, What is our most intimate companion? What is it that adds to or detracts from the quality of our lives? The state of our mind. That's it. In the Nakula Pita Sutta, the Buddha gave an instruction to an old man who perhaps was close to death or he was in a He was ill and perhaps dying, and he asked the Buddha for advice. And the Buddha's advice to this man was, though your body be sick, let not your mind be sick. Thus, you should train yourself. So that's an entirely different point of view. So in the Tibetan tradition, in the in many in other Buddhist traditions caretakers are meant to help people if they're ill if they're dying help people to find a forgiving positive attitude help people to die without fear that is both the goal for ourselves and the goal if we are caretaking somebody to help them feel the goodness of their own being to help them feel if they need to complete business to do so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who worked with uh, dying people wrote about what she called the final stage of growth 
What is the final stage of growth for a human being? She said it's after somebody has received a prognosis. They only have a week to live. She said they get very clear. They get very busy about what they need to do before they go. The final stage of growth. If they need to forgive, suddenly, yeah, it's got to happen today. Or if they need to complete something to the best of their ability, they take care of what needs taken care of. That's the recognition of how important it is when we die, to die in as complete and kind of clean manner as you can. To die without fear. That's possible. But we need a whole new way of thinking about death. So the Buddha said, No other thing do I know which brings so much suffering as an uncultivated and undeveloped mind. A mind that is racked by despair, by grief, by fear, by the 10,000 things. He also said, No other thing do I know which brings so much happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. And that is why we practice. To cultivate and develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that completely help us in our lives. Forgiveness, peace, tolerance, patience. We have, you know, endless opportunities to practice these things. And these are what we will have to rely on. It's like putting money in the bank. You put money in the bank so you will have it when you need it. The same with our practice. We put, we cultivate the qualities of forgiveness and strength and patience and peace and compassion, generosity. It's like money in the bank. So that is the whole territory of suffering and Now we move on to the territory of impermanence, anicca, the word in Pali, anicca. So we sort of know things are changing. We look outside ourselves and, yeah, everything's changing. Autumn turns into winter and spring and, yeah, yeah, everything changes. And it always seems like death is happening, but to other people, you know, it's out there. Stephen Levine, who used to teach about death and dying, told a story about standing on a stage in front of a large crowd of people, maybe a thousand people or something, and saying to them, how many of you are going to die? And he said it took a really long time for people to raise their hands. We don't get it, do we? Or, and this may be psychologically true, we think, oh yeah, I'm going to die, but we put it out into the future. Some, it's like, oh, it will, yeah, when I'm old. <laughs> when do we get old? Now that I'm old, I, I see how elusive it is. 
<laughs> what it, where does old happen? Has it happened already? And I, I missed it, or is it coming? Or So we have this little dance we do with the idea of death. Yeah, it will happen to me someday, but not for a long time. The truth is, what is the truth? We don't know, do we? We know we're going to die. But we don't know when. Stephen Batchelor said, Since death is certain and the time of death is uncertain, what then shall I do? That's a koan. That's a question that only we can answer for ourselves. Nobody can answer it for you. How do we hold this great paradox? Yes, I'm going to die, but I don't know when or how even. You know, what What will it be? <laughs> what then shall I do? Does it set a fire under you? Does it make you feel like, wow, got to clean up my act? Dalai Lama, awareness of impermanence is encouraged so that when it is coupled with appreciation of the enormous potential of our human existence, it will give us a sense of urgency that I must use every precious moment. Urgency is not a bad thing if it motivates you to a sense of the preciousness and the shorted, shortness of our lives. Sometimes impermanence shows us things that are difficult to bear. Loss. The loss of our own body's strength or beauty or energy or capacity or abilities. Those are losses. So in some sense that part of aging is dealing with change. Ramdas said, aging is suffering if you haven't made friends with change. We would all rather have a young body that can go from morning till night with unflagging energy, right? I mean, who wouldn't? We know what that's like. It's not how it is as we get older. And to think it should be is one of the causes we suffer. Then we lose people, we lose places, we lose all kinds of outer, we lose jobs, we lose friends. We lose, there's a lot of loss in aging. So here is a poem I love to read by Elizabeth Bishop called One Art because she's talking about this loss that we all experience. 
And she's working her way through it in her own way, just as each of us has to work our own way through the experience of loss. She writes, The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones. And vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, like a disaster. She finds her way from this very human reaction of disaster. Something is lost, a person we love, or whatever it is. Money, we lose all our money, and it feels like a disaster. A disaster. And then, what happens? Life goes on. Life goes on. And in retrospect, we see something that we couldn't see at the time. It wasn't a disaster. It was part of life, but it was only one part of life. It wasn't the final uh, thing we would say about life. It was one of many losses perhaps, but not a disaster. So I love the way she works her way through that understanding. So one of the questions that we work with as we get older and as we, the horizon of of our mortality becomes more clear to us, one of the the things we need to look at with our mindfulness, with our practice, is what is my relationship to change? What is my relationship to change? Because that is what we need to learn to be more skilled riders of the waves of change. We need to become good surfers. Surfers learn how to ride waves, right? How do they learn? By getting out there and doing it. You can't learn any other way. So we learn to ride the waves of change as we get older.
Pema Chodron says, it's not impermanence per se or even knowing we're going to die that is the cause of our suffering. It's our resistance to change which is suffering. So we get a chance to practice with small changes, with large changes. Okay, then the third uh, of these three things that describe reality is anatta, or taking something that is basically impersonal and making it personal, taking what is not self to be self. Every time we identify with a thought, a sensation, uh, an emotion, a belief, we say, oh yeah, that's me. That's mine. Every time we do that, we're building this illusory notion of self. That there are things that define me. There are possessions that are mine. Whether they're people or houses or cars or places or when we take that as being true and real, we are fooling ourselves. So these are, I think I'll stop there because I want to leave some time for any questions or discussion Um, there's more to say of course there always is Um, but I think I'll leave the further teachings on not self for another time I imagine that you hear about that here from Donald or from Sylvia so these three things that we practice with as we get older. We practice with them when we're young as well, but they seem to have more import to us as we age or as we see the frailty of the body through various illnesses or disability. We get, oh, that's right. This is how it is. This is the nature of our human life, the reality of it. So we're not in contention with it, but we're seeing what our task is to work skillfully with these three things. Okay, any thoughts, any questions? (laughs) I've given you quite a download here this morning. Is it good? Is it too much? Is it overwhelming? Is it... Some are saying it's good. It's reality. reality. (laughs) Yes, it is reality. And we need to learn how to talk about it. And one such way is in these kinds of contexts, in the context of practice. We have 
we have a practice that includes these things. So that gives us some agency. We're not just, we don't need to just lie down and say, oh, <laughs> oh, you know, roll, let, let impermanence just roll over me. No, we don't need to do that. Yes. Here's a wait for the mic. Okay. Hi. Hi. My name is Sarah and um hi. <laughs> I am coming I've been coming to Spirit Rock for a while but had been coming to the Thursday women's group until uh-huh. my schedule changed. So today is my uh-huh. first day here. Oh, and I'm really good. grateful to be here and um it sort of was another lesson in accepting, you know, impermanence and change because I was really attached to that group and and I could, you know, have to take a break for a little while. But, um, I mean, every time I come here, whoever is speaking, the topic is always really timely and I am coming out of five years of chronic illness Mm. and I feel like I learned a lot of these wonderful Buddhist lessons through being kind of chronically ill and in bed a lot. But as soon as I started to get healthy again, it was such an interesting reminder of how the practice never ends, you know, that I I thought I had understood the importance of accepting change and not fighting what is. But as soon as I became healthier again, I wanted things to keep moving in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And so um, coming here is just a really helpful reminder that... Mm -hmm there will always be that change and that, and also the importance of knowing that things happen to all of us and um, just to be kind of more graceful in my acceptance yes. of whatever comes my way. And That's right. And, and there's something about when we're ill, I think it's pretty clear we're not in charge. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we feel healthy and strong, oh, I'm in charge now. I'm back in charge. Right. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Here's another. I'm not sure if I have a question or a statement. Uh, That's okay. um, You know, your talk today was like basically, um, you know, pulling the covers off of life, you know, just just talking about the, the... the thing that really nobody in our culture, I think, ever wants to talk about. That's right. And... It's a subject that's always lurked in my conscience, and um, I think if you're a sentient being, <laughs> it, it does lurk in your conscience. But um, that the knowledge of what you were talking about today of our mortality, um, one has a choice. It seems to me of looking at what you just talked about today, and you can. I could walk out of here right now and just become completely despondent and get very depressed as, as like one side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side is to just accept it. I don't know that there's anything in between, really. Um, could you elaborate a little yeah, bit? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not to be to encourage either one. I don't want you to become complete despondent. Actually the whole basis of our practice is we're better equipped to handle life when we are in touch with what's true 
and we find a way to be in harmony with it. So it's not meant to be something that makes us feel just horrible. It's meant to show us where where to pay attention, where our agency is. We can't uh, argue with gravity. We can't argue with impermanence. But how can we live in harmony with it? How can we become good surfers of change? Um, so, so becoming more... Uh, You know, like one lama said when he, he was being asked about death, and he said, he said, when death comes, he said, I will not be surprised because he's already practiced with it. You know, he's familiar with the, the possibility. He won't be like the CEO who said, what did I do wrong? You know, who was just freaking out. No, we want to be comfortable with change. We want to accept the changes that are inevitable with greater grace. And this is what practice allows us. So when you sit in meditation, notice all the things that are changing moment to moment that are not a problem. It's not a problem that the exhale follows the inhale. You know, it's just natural. It's part of life. It's not you hear noises, you hear sounds, you see sights. Everything is in a process of change. Make peace with it. It's the way it is. Find the great freedom inside that allows you to flow with change and not be in contention with it. To be in contention with it is to suffer. So there's some kind of middle way in what you're saying. And that's where we practice where it, change is not always a problem. Sometimes change is for the better. We, yay, I like change. You know, when we're suffering and we get better. Ah, that's great. It's the only change we don't like is when we're, we have something we like and then we start to, it starts to disappear or we lose it. So there's much about change that is positive. Comfortable, good news, easy. So we want to remember that as well. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to share a personal story since I came out this so positive before. So a few years ago, I left my stressful job to take a sabbatical to finish a book and spend time with my six friends who are on chemo, two of which who have died my family and everything else. And during that time, I suffered um, some loss of vision, which didn't allow me to go back to my job as a neurosurgeon. So I realized while taking a course in ASL just for the benefit of doing it, that I was beginning to see the world differently through my practice. And there was a different type of seeing. And when you say, why me? I've learned to say, why not me? Mm-hmm. Why am That's I different? Right. Yes. And, and the other part is that I try to wake up every day with a sense of gratitude yes. about um, my, my life, what I can do. I'm completely free of my stress of my previous job. I've yes. immersed myself in intellectual and spiritual studies and I can see the world differently now. That's right. And I think the sense of gratitude that 
my spiritual practice is to wake up every day and thank God for my for whoever I am right now. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's how it works. We we literally change our perception. We change our perception of things changes in a positive direction. It doesn't change as far as like you know, practice doesn't mean scaring ourselves. <laughs> you know, it doesn't get we don't get more fearful, we get less fearful. We get more in touch with how things are both in the sense of impermanence and all that, but also how they're supporting us. What is it our life what is coming to us, what we're given in this life is so enormous. That would be a whole other Dharma talk. But today, I thank you for your attention to the the nitty gritties of you know reality, and I hope it's helpful to you in your practice. So let's close with some loving kindness um, and dedicate the merit. Remembering that our practice not only benefits ourselves, especially when we remember to send ourselves good wishes for our health, our happiness, our peace, our well-being, feeling directly the benefit of this way of practice, this teaching. And remembering that our practice benefits those whom we share this life with, the people that we come in contact with regularly, our families, people we live with, our dear friends and companions, our pets, everybody benefits as we are more easeful, and less fear, less fearful in our own lives. And so we dedicate the good work of being here together this morning and looking at these things to the benefit and welfare of all beings, however we may affect the world, knowing that our practice matters and it does make a difference and that we wish sincerely for the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings everywhere be at peace within themselves. May all beings everywhere be at peace with one another. 
and may all beings everywhere live in great harmony and peace. Thank you for your kind attention this morning and have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.